We'll go to the 14th chapter in the Gospel of Mark. I just want you to know this has been a, a really, really special privilege just to be with you this week, to be able to share God's Word with you, and so I just thank you for your attentive hearts and spirits. What a joy to be in a place like this and to experience a week of camp together. It's been a real highlight for my family. I know a lot of the staff has slipped out. There's a few staff still here, and I'll just add my thanks to you as a staff for the way that you have served us so well this week. It's been really, really special for me and my family just to sit under the ministry of this camp. And so thank you so much for the way you have served. Let's go to Mark chapter 14 as we get closer to the end of the gospel. And this will be our last look together in the gospel of Mark tonight. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. Jesus is with his disciples, and he's going to take them into Garden of Gethsemane. So look at verse 32. And they went to a place... Called, excuse me, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to the Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this evening, and we want to learn from your word. We want our hearts to be challenged. We want our behavior and lives and spirits to be confronted with the truth of your word. So encourage us and build us up, teach us, instruct us. We need your spirit to use your word. May I not say less or more than I should. And Father, would your spirit teach us tonight according to your word. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the passage that I just read tonight, you heard something about Jesus in a garden with his disciples. You heard about a cup that Jesus didn't want to have to drink if it were possible. And you heard about Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' desertion as his disciples fled. 
you, you saw and heard Jesus' faithful obedience in the midst of some of the deepest, darkest suffering, certainly the darkest that Jesus faced, and certainly darker than anything you and I have faced, and yet you saw Jesus respond faithfully and obediently, and you see that compared and contrasted with the disciples' lack of obedience, and that's going to teach us something of what it means to respond faithfully and obediently in the face of suffering. Many of you are familiar with the very well-known hymn story of the hymn, It Is Well, written by Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a very successful lawyer and real estate investor in the Chicago area, and he lost a massive amount of his fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. On top of all of that, very near the same time, he and his wife lost their four-year-old child to the scarlet fever. Knowing how devastated their family was, he felt a vacation would be appropriate, and he put his wife and four daughters on a ship and sent them off to England. And sometime later, Horatio, staying behind in Chicago, he was going to finish up business details and then join his family in England. And he receives a telegram from his wife, which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? There was a horrific accident, and the ship sank, and nearly 250 lives were lost. Horatio boards a ship and decides he's going to meet his wife in England. And about the time that they were passing through the waters where his daughter's ship sank, the captain of the ship came and found Horatio, knowing the details, and let him know that they were in that place in the Atlantic where the lives had been lost. And so that's where Horatio Spafford composed the words to the well-known song, It Is Well. What goes through someone's heart and mind to be able to navigate unspeakable grief and difficulty and suffering? Now, sadly, Horatio Spafford is one whose later life and theology is not to be commended. He went through uh, spiritual difficulties at the end of his life, and yet we see for a season he found the truth and had his heart anchored in the hope and truth of who God is and how God can bring someone through suffering. And I know that here we are tonight, and each one of us here is in one of three categories. Number one, either you're currently in the midst of a season of testing and suffering and trial. Number two, perhaps you're coming out of a season of testing and suffering and trial. Number three, you might be headed into a season of testing and suffering and trial. God's people, God's followers, are not exempt from suffering. Mark was very intentional in the way that he laid out his book and showed that if you're going to go all in for Christ, if you're in on following Christ, you have to think through the consequences and be willing to follow Christ no matter the cost because there's a very high cost to following Christ. And you will find yourself in seasons of life where you are crying out to God and saying, God, I do not understand with everything I know about you and if you say to be, if you call yourself to be good and with everything I see about you in Scripture, why does my life filled with such grief? Why is my life filled with sorrow? What gives you the proper perspective as a follower of Christ to continue following God when you receive the tragic news of a terminal diagnosis? When you receive the news of the death of a loved one? The death of a spouse, the death of a child, the loss of a job, financial ruin, when your church 
falls apart, when your marriage is not all that you expected it to be? How do you as a Christian look at spiritual persecution and suffering and say, how is it that I am supposed to follow God in this season? I want us as Christians to be prepared for what it means to follow Christ because it will not all be rainbows and roses. There will be very difficult days and many of you know that far better than I do. I've heard just in meeting a few of you this week and you quickly telling me your stories, some of you have been through great difficulties and great sorrows and so how can we as God's people follow Him obediently? Here's the one thing that I want you to catch tonight because before I give it to you, as you walk through this passage, you see Jesus in a garden with his disciples, and he faces intense spiritual suffering, and he responds correctly, and Mark takes pains to compare and contrast that to the disciples' failure. They don't have the faith that they ought. Now, praise God that there's restoration and grace for the disciples, but in this moment, as Mark is painting the picture, Jesus responds as he should. The disciples give us a perfect example of how not to respond, and so we want to be people who look at Jesus' model and example, and we respond obediently. So here's the one thing. When you find yourself in a season of trial and in a season of testing, there's a question that you need to ask yourself, and here's what that question is. What does faith and obedience look like when you find yourself in a trial you've got to figure out what's next so many of us want to know the big picture we want to be able to see the end we feel like there's no way through these stormy waters unless we can figure out the big picture of what God's doing but instead all we need to know is what is our next step what does faith and obedience look like so that we continue following God not 10 years from now, not 20 years from now, not the big picture in view, but how do I make it through today? And then how do I make it through tomorrow? And what does faith and obedience in this moment look like so that I can respond as God would have me to? Let's go to Scripture here and look at this example of Jesus' suffering and see what it has for us. You're going to look tonight, we're going to start looking at the garden. And I'm going to give you some things from the perspective of Jesus and then I'm going to jump to the perspective of the disciples. And you're going to watch how the garden plays out very differently for Jesus and for the disciples. You'll have a bit of a difficult time sorting out, okay, am I on the perspective of Jesus or am I on the perspective of the disciples? I jump back and forth a little bit so you can just sort it out as we go. Let's start here in the garden in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane. This is 300 yards to the east of the Temple Mount. Very, very close to the city, very close to where Jesus has just spent several days in confrontation with the religious leaders. Last night, we looked in chapter 12, I think we were, and it was very likely Tuesday of Passion Week. This is now two days later. Jesus has finished the, the uh, Passover meal with his disciples and in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And now, after that meal, they go out into the garden because this is a place Jesus has often spent time with his disciples. He wants to go back and they're going to spend time in prayer and there's things that Jesus needs them to be prepared for in the suffering that is ahead. And it's very significant that he brings all the disciples and he tells them, sit here while I pray. And now there's two groups because out of the group of disciples, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and he goes a little bit further. It's significant that Jesus takes those three. These would be the three of the inner circle. They had been very close with Jesus. And in some 
some of the material of Mark that we have skipped over and not covered together in our week, you'll notice Peter, James, and John had a very up-close view into some special things about who Jesus was, and they also made profound statements that play into the events of what's going to happen here in the garden. Peter, James, and John, in chapter 9, they were with Jesus at the transfiguration. They saw him in all of his glory and should have seen and picked up on things that they were missing. But not only that, James and John in chapter 10, if you flip back to chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, flip back to chapter 10, James and John have an argument, not with each other as much as with the rest of the disciples, about who would have a privileged place in Jesus' kingdom. And they wanted to be on the right and the left. And they come to Jesus and they say, we don't really care which one. Just give one of us the right and one of us the left. Jesus, can you pull that off for us Uh, when the kingdom comes? They were misunderstanding still who Jesus was. And they were looking at their own ability to uh, have a prominent place. And in verse 37, here's what Jesus says. They said to him, verse 37, grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus says, do you realize how hard this is going to get? You have no concept what you're asking. And in verse 39, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's kind of sidesteps their question then in verse 40. He goes on to say, uh, this isn't mine to grant, but just so you know, I'm glad you think you can handle the difficult days because you're going to get them. You're going to drink that cup. You're going to receive that baptism. So James and John assured Jesus, yeah, we can do it. Not just that. Look at Peter in chapter 14. Chapter 14 just moments, minutes before what happens in the garden. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, look at verse 29. Jesus is having this meal with his disciples and he lets them know, listen, every single one of you are going to abandon me. And they say, no, we won't. And here's what happens in verse 29 of chapter 14 through verse 31. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You're going to see the disciples all break that vow here just hours after saying this. Again, praise God, there's restoration. Tonight we're not looking at the glory of the restoration and God's grace in that. You need to know it's there. But you need to catch the significance of the fact that both Peter, James, and John, all three of them, had proclaimed their love for the Lord and their wholehearted devotion. And Jesus brings all of his disciples into the garden. He knows how close his impending death is. You all need to sit here and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further and he says, sit here and pray. He's greatly distressed. He's greatly troubled. Look at chapter 14. Come back and look at verse 34. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. He's saying this to Peter, James, and John, the second group. Even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here, Jesus addresses his Father, Abba, Father. One thing to note as a side note, 
that word Abba. Many of you have perhaps heard that related to our English word daddy. There's, there's some helpful concepts in that, but there's some profoundly unhelpful concepts in that as well. Uh, yes, it was a term of endearment. Jesus was changing the norms of the day to, to speak of such a close personal relationship with the Father, and so it's appropriate to think of the intimate relationship that we have with fathers in that sense. But there's nothing of the childish connotations of our English words of daddy, and that's perhaps where the word is best avoided in that sense. So, come back to it here. Jesus falls down. He's so distressed. He's pouring out his heart and soul. This is such intense suffering. You see Jesus at the height of his humanity. In all of his humanity. Yes, he's fully God, but you see the weight of the emotion that he falls on his faith. He says, God, if there's any way possible, please let this cup pass from me. I think sometimes we, we miss, because Jesus is fully divine, we miss the pain that he experienced in his humanity. Uh, I heard one pastor illustrating this concept. Have you seen the painting? There's a well-known painting of Jesus in the garden, and we think there of Jesus, oh, he spent the night before in the garden praying. I bet that was a really neat prayer service. And you've seen Jesus kneeling at the rock with his arms crossed, and he's on his knees, and his, his legs are crossed, and he looks peaceful. He, there's this halo behind him, and we envision Jesus in this calm composure. Oh, Lord, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I would. That's not what was taking place. Jesus, in all of his humanity, is crying out. He falls down. God, please. He's calling out to the Father for help. And yet, you see in that. So when we find ourselves in times of trial, there is nothing wrong with going to the Father. You see Jesus' faith-filled response to the Father. He knows that the Father has all the ability to change the circumstances if He desired. When you are in these situations, faith and obedience looks like going to God and saying, God, please, in prayer, can you do something? And then you see Jesus' response. And he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is what faith and obedience looks like, to be so surrendered to the will of God that though we may not like it, though we may not wish it, we desire to faithfully walk in the footsteps, uh, to walk in God's will in obedience to our lives. This is what it ought to be for us when we walk through those times of testing. Well, if that's the perspective of Jesus in the garden, what's the perspective of the disciples? And so look at verse 37. Jesus comes and he finds them sleeping. He comes back to Peter, James, and John. They're sleeping. These were his three closest friends. These were the three that had seen the most significant things about his ministry. They had all just proclaimed, we will never, we will never turn from you. And they're asleep. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look at what Jesus just does there, right? The human temptation, if you or I were in a situation like that, if you're in your greatest hour of need and you call your three best friends for help and they don't even stay awake for just a moment to pray with you and you come back and find them sleeping, the human response is, are you kidding me? This is what our friendship means. Everything I've done for you. But that's not how Jesus responds. Do you see the heart of the shepherd in that verse? What does he do? With compassion for his disciples, he says, guys, 
You don't want to enter into temptation. I'm concerned for your well-being. You need to be praying. Jesus had just prophesied that they would all turn away from him, but that doesn't mean he desired it or wanted it to come to be. And with the heart of a shepherd, he pleads with them for their own spiritual well-being to be in prayer. But a third time he goes away and he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And he came a third time, verse 41. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. That phrase, it is enough, is very difficult to translate, but the next two phrases help us understand what it means. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus knows that the hour has come. The hour is here where his moment of testing and suffering will take place. And you see the resolve of our Savior that there he is in the garden, and what does he desire to do? The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Rise and let us be going. Jesus, in his greatest hour of trial, he doesn't turn tail and run. He's not pleading with God. Once he has his answer, he prayed that God would take it away. But now he knows the hour is here. And in faith and obedience, he is going to continue in steadfast obedience. And he's going to faithfully fulfill everything that God intends for him. So as we continue to think about this, because I want you to see how Jesus has total resolve to accept the will of the Father. He had just prayed that if possible, the cup would pass from him. What was this cup that Jesus didn't want to partake of? The cup and the hour are synonymous. Throughout the Old Testament, you could look at the cup and the cup was designated as full of God's wrath and judgment against sinners. You could see many places in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, that speak of the cup of God's judgment against sinners. And now Jesus, at the moment impending where he was about to be portrayed and handed over to his crucifixion, knew that he would bear the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin, all in this cup. And to bear the weight of sin was something that was causing tremendous agony and grief. And I want you to catch how intense this suffering was. There is a children's book named The Prince's Poison Cup by R.C. Sproul. My church knows that from time to time I like to read from children's stories and from uh, especially children's Bibles. Um, I knew I was at camp, had to be on my best behavior. I waited all the way till Thursday night before I broke one of these out. I actually brought two with me tonight. Even if you don't have kids, I would encourage you to be reading about the gospel from some really good children's books. Uh, there's some fantastic ones that, that before my wife and I ever even had kids, we started reading from, and it just puts fresh eyes on the story of everything that God did. So, by the way, R.C. Sproul has a series of children's books that he, as a theologian, is able to take some tricky concept and put the cookies on the bottom shelf so our children can understand some of these things. But in The Prince's Poison Cup, he tells about a king, the king of life. And he tells this story how the king of life built a beautiful park and he placed subjects into this park and it was a wonderful place to live. And he dwelt with them and their hearts were warm and they loved talking to the king of life. And in the king of life, there was a fountain in the middle, excuse me, in the middle of this park, there was a fountain and it flowed with cool, crisp water. And it looked so inviting and refreshing, but they were not allowed to partake of this fountain because the king of life knew that when they did, it would turn their hearts to stone. 
And for many, many, for, for, for quite a time, the people were so enamored with the king of life and they were caught up in their relationship with him that they paid no attention to the fountain in the middle of the park until one day the king's arch enemy in a long black cloak shows up and he begins to convince the subjects of the city that they need to partake of the fountain of life. And he showed them how attractive the cool, refreshing water was. I think you guys are smart enough to catch some of the parallels with a biblical story about a garden and a tree and a snake. So I won't go on to finish all of the story because I think you know some of these things. But eventually the people partake from that fountain and their hearts turn to stone and they're banished from the park. And they go erect the city of man. And in the city of man there's conflict. There's hatred. They no longer converse with the king. They're cruel to one another. And in the city of man, there's another fountain in the center of that city. And that fountain is oozing and boiling with a dark, evil poison. That fountain is filled with all of the kings of life's anger and wrath at the disobedience of his people. One tiny drop from that fountain would kill the strongest man. But the king of life so loved his subjects that he desired to save them, to rescue them. And the king of life goes to his son and he comes up with a plan with his son and he, desi- he sends his son with a golden cup. And he tells his son that he needs to go into the city of man and drink an entire cup filled with poison and that that would rescue the people. Okay, from there you can finish out the rest of the story. But he captures at one moment the son's trepidation with having to fulfill this task. And he he says this, The prince trembled in fear and began to sweat. He loved his father. This is as he's journeying with a band of followers to the city of man to find this fountain. He couldn't help wondering if there was another way for the people to be healed. He wondered if he really had to drink the poison. He thought about the golden cup he was carrying and said to himself, I wish I didn't have to drink from this cup. As the prince struggled with his fear, he remembered the words of his father, you must drink the cup, it's the only way to heal our people. More than anything else, the prince wanted to please the king, so right then and there he decided that he would not turn back, but would drink the poison just as his father had asked, no matter what the pain and suffering it might cost him. The prince's friends also became very frightened as the angry mob of people around them grew, and one by one they all ran away. Soon the prince was all alone in the midst of the angry people, but he kept looking for the fountain that was full of poison. Do you catch the resolve to continue in the will of the Father? And just on a far infinitely greater scale, Mark lets us know that Jesus, though He was, though he was struck with agony, though He was at the, at the limit of His emotional pain, says, Father, if there's some way, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And when he knew the hour had come, and he knew he would be betrayed on your behalf and my behalf, he faithfully stepped in and obediently pursued God's plans. Praise God that he had that obedience for you and for me. Now you need to also see the betrayal then that takes place in the next section. So not only the garden, but also the betrayal that took place there in the garden. Verse 43, 
Immediately while he was still speaking, uh, Mark lets us know that Judas comes, and he says Judas was one of the twelve, and he comes with all the, the, the members of the Sanhedrin. There were these religious leaders who were, uh, um, excuse me, he comes with soldiers who were sent at the request of the Sanhedrin, and these soldiers are going to arrest Jesus, and there had been a, a signal prearranged that the one he came up and kissed is the one that was uh, Jesus. And so now Judas comes in, he calls him rabbi, he gives him a kiss, these terms of endearment, and uh, you see the betrayal, you see Judas' supposed closeness, and at this moment, in verse 45, when he came up, he went and kissed He went up at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So one of the disciples, in self-preservation or this reactionary move, decides to step in and protect Jesus. And John lets us know it's Peter. Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that Malchus is the name of the servant. He doesn't tell us that Jesus heals the the servant's ear. What Jesus is interested is, uh, excuse me, Mark is interested in showing us how the disciples respond in this moment, Jesus steps in and he says, am I some kind of criminal? What have I done that would make you come with this many soldiers to me? Day after day I was with you in the temple is what Jesus says. You, you had plenty of opportunity to seize me, but now you need to do it out here away in the dark in the cover of night when the crowds are not around. And notice what Jesus again says. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all fled him. Jesus resolved to see scriptures fulfilled so that you and I could have forgiveness, so that redemption could take place, and the disciples flee. That's their response. In fact, they all flee to the point that there's this one unnamed person, there's this interesting story, who, who's just wearing a linen cloth wrapped around him, and when he's seized, he he's so would rather... Um, he doesn't want to be following Jesus to this point, and he'd rather be running through the woods without a stitch of clothing than be caught dead next to Jesus. And he flees for his life. There's no one willing to follow. Who the identity of this individual is, there's many commentators who think perhaps Mark is writing himself in as a cameo appearance. There's other options out there. Nobody agrees. Frankly, the identity of this man is not that significant to the story. Mark, is, Mark doesn't need us to know the identity. What he needs us to know is there's Jesus allowing the Scripture to be fulfilled and no one else is willing to follow the disciples flee they are not faithfully and obediently following a Christ even though that they had pledged to their honor that they would and so you see Jesus why was Jesus willing to show that kind of confidence why was Jesus able to so confidently follow in the face of difficulty when he came to his hour of trial and testing? Well, certainly something of his divine nature plays in. Certainly something of his dependence on the Father through prayer. We ought to look at prayer as a means, an incredible means of support for going through trial and suffering. But there's one more thing that I want you to catch in terms of why Jesus so confidently went through his hour of suffering. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death. And we often think about Jesus predicting his death, but Jesus did not just predict his death. He predicted his death and his resurrection in each of the three times that he spoke about the end of his life. He did not just say, they will crucify me. He said, I will be handed over 
delivered over. He talked about his death coming, but he spoke of his resurrection. Jesus was able to faithfully endure. He was able to walk obediently because he knew the end of the story. He knew about the resurrection. For you and I, this has profound significance on the fact uh, as we think about how it is that we are supposed to navigate days of suffering. Mark took pains to let us know that if you sign up to follow Christ, there is going to be hardship and difficulty. There is a brand of gospel preaching out there today that says if you follow Jesus Christ, he here to bless your life beyond your wildest imagination. Yes, Jesus gives blessings when we follow him, but there is a kind of prosperity gospel garbage that will only lead your soul to hell if you think Jesus came to die and give you your happiest life here now on this earth. He didn't. Jesus did not die to make you happy. He died to make you holy. There is unspeakable happiness in following our Savior and knowing the promise that is awaiting for us one day. But brothers and sisters, we do not wait for heaven on earth. We wait for heaven in heaven. It is cross before glory. That's the way it worked for Jesus. That's the way it will work for you and I. We take up our cross and we suffer daily following Jesus Christ. And we know that glory will come. But for so many of God's people, this life is filled with hardship and pain and suffering. And yet we do not lose heart. We know that glory is coming. We know that one day we will again dwell face to face with God. Why? Because Jesus was obedient in the garden. Do not miss the significance of the garden in the story of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis and you remember there in the garden, what was Adam's disobedience? His disobedience brought death to all people in the garden. Death to you and I because of Adam's disobedience in the garden. And here Jesus, the true and better Adam, shows up in the garden and he faithfully obeys. And his obedience in the garden brings life as he's about to be handed over to his crucifixion, but not only his crucifixion, his resurrection, which will ultimately lead us into joyful face-to-face dwelling with God one day. So what does this mean for you and I? If you're here today, I want to speak to unbelievers. Does Jesus' faithful obedience in the garden mean anything to you? Have you come to the place where you've repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus obeyed in the garden and went to the cross and he was crucified and he rose again to pay for our sins. To, get, to pay the penalty for sin so that any who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ could find life and forgiveness. You and I are separated from God because of our sin. And only through the gracious blood of Jesus Christ applied on our behalf can we find forgiveness. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, come to Him for repentance. Realize there's no amount of work you can do on your behalf to earn your way into right relationship with God. There's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no spiritual act you can do, baptism, communion, any good deed will not save you. It's only by faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you can have your sins forgiven. For the believer that is here this morning, this evening, if you have this hope of salvation and yet you find yourself going through dark and difficult days, or perhaps you will be someday down the road, I want you to remember that you can trust God's sovereign plan, that you need to respond faithfully and obediently, and keeping the end perspective in mind is something that will encourage all of us. 
We need to be people who are not looking for the best life on this earth here and now, but we're waiting for it in glorification someday. One of the things that saddens my heart so greatly as I continue to hear of Christians, excuse me, professing Christians, those that at one time proclaimed Christ, they professed Christ and they begin to turn away from him, and I see them talking as if, as if now they've found true happiness and they're often looking back on their church or what their experience is like in God's, with God's people and they're saying, uh, they're pointing at the flaws that exist and saying, now they've found true happiness as if somehow that's better. But what I want you to catch and see, uh, remember, if you see sin in your church today, if you see sin in the life of other Christians, that matches with the gospel story. You understand the need for forgiveness. You understand how sin and suffering affects us in the world today. God never intended that we would find total happiness in the here and now. He pointed us forward to someday dwelling face to face with Him. It's significant in the book of Revelation that in chap- at the very end of the book, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, in the, in the middle of the new Jerusalem, there is a river, of the river of life. And on both sides of that river of life, there is a tree. And that tree bears fruits for 12 months, 12 different kinds of fruit. And the leaves of that tree give healing to the nations. It's a garden of sorts in the middle of the new heavens and new earth. In God's plan of redemption, Scripture tells us how things went terribly wrong in the first garden and how God is working through the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back into face-to-face dwelling with God. Kevin DeYoung writes about this in the book called The Biggest Story, how the snake crusher brings us back to the garden. Jesus is the snake crusher, the one that came to bruise the head of the serpent that sent things so terribly wrong in the first garden and would work to bring salvation to his people. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Those of you that see sin and suffering in the world, around you today and you say, God, please, could you change? I don't understand how this matches with who you are as good. I want to encourage you to set your sights on the glory to come someday, for that is what we need. Here's how he closes his book. He says, we live in the beginning of the end of the story that we are still in the middle of. We know it's not the end because we haven't made it back to the garden. We get glimpses of the garden here and there in our hearts, in our families, in the church. But anyone who loves this story longs to see the one who is the center of the story. The snake crusher is coming back again to wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He's coming to make a new beginning and to finish what he started. He's coming to give us the home we once had and might have forgotten that we lost. So keep waiting for him. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail and the promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best days, day after day after day after day. And forever and ever it will be a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. Father, we wait for that day. Please work in the hearts of your people.
Lord, if there's some here who haven't responded in repentance to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, would they turn from their sins and trust in Christ? For the believer here who is facing the discouraging trials of living in a cursed, sin, broken world, Father, would you give that believer an eternal perspective that we are waiting for the glory of one day again, dwelling with you face to face. And right now, we need to respond in faith and obedience, properly living for you as we should. Encourage us with these truths. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.